Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett. This is Employment Law Matters. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 4. This episode is being released on the 18th of April, 2023. In this season, I'm picking my favourite episodes from a series of 30 employment law webinars that I ran in 2021, where a leading employment lawyer answered your questions over Zoom. I've not only picked my favourite episodes, but I've selected the best half dozen questions and answers from those episodes for you. As I said, I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm a member of Outer Temple Chambers, presenter of The Legal Hour on LBC Radio, and I'm the founder of the HR Inner Circle. This week, we're looking at time limits in employment tribunals. And I'm playing extracts from a webinar I did with Rebecca Tuck, King's Counsel, of Old Square Chambers. The things you'll hear include the tests for getting an extension of time in the employment tribunal. What does it mean when a discriminatory act extends over a period? And does lodging a grievance pause or extend the time limits? Before that, if you get my employment law email updates, and if you don't, go and sign up at danielbarnett.co.uk. If you get my employment law email updates, you'll know that yesterday was the launch of my new HR Policies 2023. It consists of 26 brilliant HR policies, all of which are legally compliant, fully up to date and integrated, meaning each policy complements and supports the other related policies. No cobbled together hodgepodge policies from 25 different sources, including the ones you were left with when you moved jobs, including the ones you downloaded from sites on the internet, including the ones that you got from different Facebook groups. Not only are they legally compliant, fully up to date and integrated, they are concise, easy to read and practical, which makes them easy to implement, easy to understand and easy to apply. They've been put together by a very experienced legal team, headed up by, modesty aside, me. And you can get them, along with some phenomenal bonuses, that they really are outstanding bonuses, from www.policies2023, that's P-O-L-I-C-I-E-S, policies2023.com. Actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you about just one of the bonuses. I call it the Business in a Box Policy Resale License for Independent HR Professionals and Solicitors. When you buy the 26 HR policies from www.policies2023.com, you'll also get distribution and resale rights for them. That means you can market and sell the policies to your existing client base to create a profitable revenue stream. And to support you, we're not only giving you the license to distribute and resell them, but we provide you with a business-in-a-box policy marketing pack consisting of a step-by-step marketing plan, keyword research, and best of all, a brandable sales letter that you can put on your website. That's just one of the bonuses. There are seven. There's so much more. Have a look at www.policies2023.com today. And now, Rebecca Tuck. 
Find out more about Daniel Barnett's HR policies at policies2023.com. Rebecca is a silk at Old Square Chambers who specialises in employment and discrimination law. She also sits as a fee-paid judge in Watford and is a qualified mediator. Back in 2021, we did a one-hour webinar on time limits in employment tribunals, which was people asking questions over Zoom and Rebecca answering them. I've picked the half dozen or so favourite, my favourite anyway, questions and answers for you to listen to. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. So on the subject of uh, time limits in employment tribunals, I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask you, if I may, and then we're going to turn to the questions. I can see Jamie Anderson's question has 22 thumbs up already, so it looks like that's the one we're taking first. But let let me jump in first um, on the basis of, of chair's privilege. In employment law, time limits are usually three months, leaving aside ACAS early conciliation extensions. And by the way, we have a webinar on ACAS early conciliation a little bit later this week with Andrew Short, QC. But time limits are normally three months. What are the tests for extending time if that three-month time limit is missed? So there are two principal tests. And whenever you're looking at the cause of action, you need to know which of the two tests you're concerned with. The test, which is found in the Employment Rights Act and is the relevant test for unfair dismissal, whistleblowing, and a lot of the Wages Act type claims, is you've got to have presented the claim within three months unless it was not reasonably practicable to do so. And if it wasn't reasonably practicable, then have you presented the claim within such further period as is reasonable? Now, the reasonable practicability test traditionally has been seen as as the stricter of the two tests. And you've got to have jolly good reasons as to why you didn't present the claim within three months. Um, I think it will be interesting in terms of the pandemic as to whether we see more of these out of time claims with people being unwell or having even more limited uh, availability of advice. Uh, But we'll see what transpires with that. The second test, which is the one found in Section 123 of the Equality Act and applies to all discrimination claims, is that you must present the claim within three months. uh, But if you haven't, is it just and equitable to extend the time limit? So reasonable practicability or just and equitable? Last question from me, Rebecca Tuck, before we turn to questions from uh, everybody else. Under detriment uh, rules and discrimination rules and also uh, unlawful deduction rules, there's a concept of acts extending over a period, which means that uh, if there have been a number of consecutive detriments, which are acts that extend over a period or acts of discrimination extending over a period or unlawful deductions extending over a period, you can take the trigger date for time limit purposes within which a claim has to be lodged as being the last of those dates. How do you actually know, though, if an act extends over a period? So I think that this is one of the areas which creates litigation risk whenever you've got a set of facts in front of you. The leading case is still the Court of Appeal judgment in Hendricks and the Metropolitan Police from years ago. And it says that you look at all the circumstances. In Hendricks, they said it was a discriminatory environment. 
So even though you had a very long time period involving different places and different people, they were looking at the overarching environment within the respondent. And I think that there is a whole uh, specter, a whole array of how people can look at this issue. And to some extent, it depends on the underlying merits of the claims as to whether tribunals are willing to say, well, yes, that's an act extending over a time. So on some specific issues like suspension, there is authority. We know that suspension acts over a period. We know that sometimes there are decisions that are made that have got lasting effects. So you haven't got the promotion. The decision is made on the date that you told you haven't got the promotion. And yes, that's got a lasting uh, lasting consequences, but the decision was made on that date. With discrimination claims, it can be very much more difficult. Um, so you're looking at, is it the same people involved? Is it the same kind of act? But there's a great deal of discretion there. Right, we're now going to turn to your questions. And if you've got a question, type it in the Q&A box and we will hopefully come to it if there's time. There's quite a lot of questions that have been asked already, 20 or so. And if you see other questions that you like, give them the thumbs up because that propels it to the top of the queue. You can ask questions anonymously if you choose to do so. Um, I'm actually going to, first of all, pick a question from Ed Jennison, which is uh, fluctuating rapidly between second and third most popular question just because it follows on from what you've just said, um, Rebecca. Ed asks, does a grievance extend time? For example, if harassment has taken place in January and a grievance is raised in February, will time run from the harassment in January or can it be extended by the grievance in February? The short answer is for a claimant, it is always safer to take the to take the time limit as running from the act that you have complained about and the grievance um, is not going to extend the time period. Now, if a claimant has missed that primary limitation period, the fact of having raised a grievance is a relevant factor in a just and equitable extension, not least because you can say, well, the respondent hasn't suffered the prejudice of having to investigate a stale claim because they were investigating it at the time. They know all about it. But the short answer is, no, it's not going to operate to extend time. Jamie Anderson from Trinity Chambers asks, aside from the prejudice on the specific facts of a case, what's the best argument against a just and equitable extension that actually works for respondents? That is the $64,000 question, isn't it? And and I'd love to know, what Jamie, what do you think the answer to that is? I mean, I always think that the knowledge that if the claimants have got knowledge of the fact that they can go to a tribunal and there are time limits to operate, I think that that is very relevant. And when you're looking at the prejudice to the parties, I think that whether or not it is expressed out loud, because frequently it isn't, I think a claimant will suffer less prejudice from losing a weak claim and more prejudice from from losing a very serious claim. But tribunals can be very wary about weighing that up before they've had a full exploration of the facts. Uh, but for a respondent, you'd always want to say, well, they're not losing a great deal anyway because it's all a complete try on. So uh, union membership, I think, is very relevant because then they're taken to have had access to legal advice that will include advice on time limits. 
And I think really you want, you're juggling a lot of balls or platting in a lot of threads here and bringing them all together to create this entire picture of they know that they've got a cause of action. They know all the facts that make up the cause of action. They could have put it in earlier and they should have put it in earlier. I sometimes find when I'm uh, arguing about prejudice or lack of prejudice that tribunals take a very inconsistent approach, Rebecca Tuck. Uh, so, for example, if a respondent says we're prejudiced because the delay means that one of our key witnesses has left employment, some employment judges will say, wow, that's a pretty knockout point. We're not going to extend time. And some judges will say, well, you can always witness someone's them, can't you? What's the problem? Is that your experience as well? Is it really licking your finger, holding it up in the air and not knowing what's going to happen? It's another one which is very much an art rather than a science. And it's why you've got such litigation risk around any area where there is an exercise of discretion. Yes, I agree with you. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. Les Veronowski asks... In an unfair dismissal claim where the three-month limit has passed, how strong would a depression-based reason need to be? So the test here, of course, is was it reasonably practicable to put the claim in earlier? And if you're relying on depression, you'd certainly want to see some medical evidence and you'd want to see statements about how people are dealing with their day-to-day affairs and what impact the depression has had on that in order to try and show that it wasn't reasonably practicable to have done it earlier. I mean, a short answer is it would really have to be very significant depression. And and I think it also helps if the claimant can show that they've suffered from depression over the entire three-month period, not just in the last couple of weeks. Yes, because otherwise you get judges just saying, well, you shouldn't have left it until the end of the period. Um, I, I always think though the difficulty with this is what changed to enable them then to put the claim in when they did. Because if, they, if they're still suffering from that serious depression in months four and five, but they put the claim in, then that suggests to me that the depression hasn't prevented them putting the claim in. They could have done it in month two or three. Yep. 26 HR policies by now from policies2023.com. Gillian Howard, right. Gillian, good morning. I think we're going to have a competition to see if Gillian Howard asks a question in every single one of the 30 webinars. Because, Gillian, I think you did last year, and yours are always incredibly popular questions that get right to the top of the queue. Gillian asks, um, I think, the same question that Jamie Anderson asked, but from the other side. What do employment judges now consider is just inequitable to allow a claim from a claimant where that claim would otherwise be out of time? Short delay with a good reason where you can show that the respondent has suffered very little prejudice. So if they've been investigating it all anyway, because there's been a grievance in, then they're going to have difficulty showing that there's prejudice. And if the respondent is saying, well, memories fade after month four, whereas it would all be much fresher in month three, 
then the claimant's going to be on a on a good submission there. Question from another anonymous attendee. How relevant are gaps in time between acts when trying to establish continuous discrimination? Uh, there's a very nasty judgment of, of Mr. Justice Langstaff in the EAT on unlawful uh, deduction from wages claims here, isn't there? The Bear Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms, as a general answer to that, you want as fewer gaps in time as possible, or you want some kind of regularity to try and show a pattern to show that it's an act extending over a period because they are neat for tribunals and lay members to understand. And if you've got massive, great big gaps, then that would suggest that it's not a continuing act, it's distinct acts. But uh, as you've just alluded to, in the context of unlawful deduction from wages, we've still got the judgment of Bear Scotland, which says that if there's been a more than a three-month delay, if there's been a gap of more than three months, then the previous deductions are going to be out of time which a lot of people think is problematic and we're surprised that that point didn't go further. But I'm sure it is going to, that that point is going to be raised at the appellate courts at some point. John Holson has asked, if a claim where a dismissal is alleged to be discriminatory and the employee has appealed, does the time run? I'm going to rephrase that, John, if you don't mind. If there's been a dismissal and then an appeal, and both are alleged to be discriminatory, does time run from the dismissal date or the appeal date? Well, that is one way you would say that this is a continuing act between the dismissal and the appeal. If it's if the way in which it is being dealt with is said, to, if both are said to be discriminatory, then I think you've got pretty good grounds for saying that this is an act extending over a period and you go from the date of the appeal. But with all of these things, if in doubt, take the date as run, take, take time as running from the earlier act. Because quite often we look at these um, issues with hindsight where we're doing the best we can with the facts that the lay clients presented to us. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedenconsulting.co.uk Mike Klein asks, what's the longest time extension you've known and what were the reasons? There is a reported case, and I can't remember what it's called. It's from a few years ago. Uh, But somebody was nine years out of time in a discrimination case. And it's because she'd gone for a, I think it was a promotion she'd gone for. And she'd always thought that it was a bit dodgy that the white bloke got it rather than the black woman. But nine years after the event, she discovered documentation uh, which had been hidden from her deliberately. And when she got that documentation, it made good her claim. And so she bought it. And the appellate court said, yes, it's just inequitable to extend that time limit 
So nine years. And the next two questions are actually about time limits for lodging ET3s, response forms, rather than ET1s. Sam Beerman has asked, good morning. In relation to a respondent, can the excuse of the employment tribunal didn't send the ET1 form to the correct department be a just and equitable reason for having the claimant's ET1 form vacated under Rule 20 of the Employment Tribunal Procedural Rules? I think... Uh, what Sam is referring to, let me get it up on screen. Uh, rule 20 is the rule about extending time in employment tribunals. Here it is on screen now. Yeah. Can rule 20 be a reason for extending time, the, the normal 28 day limit for an ET3, if the employment tribunal sent the ET1 form to the incorrect department? Reading more of Sam's question, because it goes on, uh, it looks like judgment was entered and then a remedy hearing was listed. Rebecca Tuck. The approach that tribunals take to the submissions of ET3s is much more generous than the approach to getting in the ET1s. The tribunal have got a great deal more discretion for extending time. And as you've seen under Rule 20, uh, if, if the respondent explains the delay, then they will get extra time for putting in the ET3. And I've seen quite a lot of this in the last 12 months because people have been instructed to work from home and therefore posts in offices hasn't been checked um, nearly as regularly as it ordinarily would be or ET envelopes going to the wrong part of the business has taken much longer to feed through because of the COVID restrictions and tribunals are granting times uh, are granting extensions for the presentation of those ET3s. Uh, now, if a remedy hearing has been scheduled because it's been taken that there has been no ET3, uh, you've just got to apply to have the default judgment, which has been entered, set aside, um, explain the reasons why you didn't get the ET3 in, attach the draft ET3 to that application and say that a uh, full merits hearing is needed in the case. An anonymous attendee has picked up on Sam Beerman's question and asked a supplemental, again relating to an extension of time for presenting an ET3. What reasons should a respondent give when presenting a response out of time? Honest and full reasons. (laughs) So, yeah, the pandemic has caused a great deal of delays and difficulties in this regard, just because people are quite rightly not working from their offices. And so that has been relied upon very heavily, quite properly. Also, if a respondent has received a claim, received the ET1, and it's only three or four days before the deadline, then put in the application to extend time as soon as possible and say, rather than having had this in our possession for 28 days, we've only had it for three days. Can we have an extra two weeks, please? As an employer, asks Sue Apps, if you need an extension of time to submit a response, how do you deal with the fact that often applications aren't dealt with by tribunals until after the time limits expired? Is the only option to put in a holding ET3? And if so, do you then need to change the application for an extension of time into an application to amend? Great question, Sue. It's a great question, Sue. 
I think Council of Perfection would say put in the application for additional time and market urgent. If you don't get a response by the deadline, then put in the holding ET3 and say, we made an application to extend time. This is a holding ET3. We're investigating it. We are proposing to defend the claims and we'll put in a full response within X days. And then when the tribunal gets the full response, then it can say, yes, time was extended in that regard. What the tribunal really wants to see here, in my opinion, is that the respondent is engaging. And that's going to prevent the duty judge who's got a huge pile of files from just issuing a default judgment. They want to see engagement. www.policies2023.com 26 HR policies just for you. Jason Breyer from 42 Bedford Row asks, in respect of Equality Act claims, what strategic view do you take on whether to apply for a preliminary hearing so as to ask the tribunal to decide time issues early or whether to hold back on time points until the full hearing? That's a really good question. um, And it's always a tricky one. If the time point is going to knock out a whole load of, not going to knock out the need to investigate a whole load of really quite stale stuff, then you want to have a go at it early on. Because one of the things, when when the tribunal are looking about whether they grant you the PH on time, they're going to, one of the things they'll be balancing is, well, is a, a one day PH on time, how much time would it save off a substantive hearing? So if you can say, well, the substantive hearing would be 10 days, whereas you've got a one day PH, then you're more likely get to get the tribunal to grant that. The other side of the coin is if you've got, and I've had this, I've had um, an employer who has dealt impeccably with a whole load of grievances early on in the chronology. And then it looks to me like the employer has become exasperated at an employee they see as being a bit of a pain in the proverbial. And they've dealt less well with the later incidents. In that kind of case, you might not want the PH on time because you want the tribunal to follow the pattern that the employer has had and to make all their findings of fact on the beautifully dealt with early chronology <laughs> um, and be a bit more forgiving on the later stuff. So I think you have to really look at the underlying merits and the strength of your evidence for the underlying case in order to make that call. That was Rebecca Tuck, King's Counsel from Old Square Chambers. Thank you, Rebecca. Join me next Tuesday, the 25th of April, 2023, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Sarah Fraser Butlin of Cloisters in which she answers questions on union recognition and collective bargaining. Do have a look at www.policies2023.com for my all-new HR policies just launched. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Daniel Barnett. Stay safe. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.